Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we got a special show lined up for you. And before I introduce our guest for that show, I just want to, for a minute, uh, thank all of you out there who connected with me on social media, through emails, whatever, to say that you thought our conversation yesterday with V, uh, the uh, artist who, uh, under the name Eve Ensler, uh, became an international star when she wrote and performed vagina monologues way back in the 90s, did our show yesterday, and uh, along with former state senator Jen Jordan, talking about violence against women, uh, the work that, that um, she, V, has done uh, to around the world to try to uh, help heal and um, head off violence against women. And many of you said it was one of the best shows that you think we've done. If So thank you for that. We thought, I think Natalie, Chase, um, and I agree that it was really a powerful, powerful show. And if you didn't get to hear it, um, it's available on our par- podcast or at, um, at our website at gpb.org slash PR, the show with the Eve Ensler. So again, thanks for all the people out there who took the time to write us about that. All right. I'm very happy about today's show um, because I think many of you um, know that every Thursday for, I guess, about five years now, Kevin Riley, the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has been my partner on the Thursday show. Yesterday, Kevin announced his retirement as editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he's had an extraordinary career at the newspaper. He has learned a lot of lessons and um, uh, has, has shared them with his uh, teams about leadership. He's uh, covered uh, with his staff some of the most important stories in Georgia over the years. And so today, Kevin Riley. As um, you announce your retirement, we're going to spend an hour talking with you about your work uh, in the newspaper business. We'll talk a little about that, too. What's happening with newspapering these days? So let's get right to it. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Well, hey, it's great to be here. And I, I want to do two things before we start. First, thanks your, thank your staff. You, you had a card, a congratulatory card <laughs> waiting for me uh, when I arrived. Uh, and as usual, the, the top-notch folks involved with this show uh, very touching card, so thank you for that. And of course, um, while I'm retiring, the new editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Leroy Chapman, who your listeners are also somewhat familiar with, because Leroy's on the show from time to time, and he's been a, uh, you know, just one of my right-hand people for a long time, and he's a tremendous journalist, and as about a fine person as I have ever known. So I feel fantastic about the future leadership of, of the AJC as well. Um, and you will, you're, you're going to keep working at the AJC in, in a kind of an emeritus position, an editor at large position. And we're certainly looking forward to having you continue 
with us on Political Rewind. I'm so. glad you answered that question because I actually <laughs> got that yesterday from the staff. Are you, are you still going to be on Political Rewind? And I said, well, that won't really be up to me, so I'll, I'll make my pitch on the air with Bill. So, um, Kevin, I, I think it's uh, appropriate to say to our listeners, you and I over the years have really become close friends. And, and so this conversation is uh, going to be uh, probably a bit more casual, a bit more informal than a lot of what we do on the show. But I was very excited that you finally, after a long time of searching and thinking about what you wanted for your life, uh, came to the decision that you were going to announce your uh, retirement. Okay, with that said, let's get right to it. You have basically worked your entire career for the Cox newspaper uh, business, starting when you were just a college student, right? That's absolutely true. I got my first job uh, as a senior in college at the University of Dayton uh, with, back in 1983. So you can do the math and figure out how old I am. Uh, although we, they put my age in the paper today. I couldn't even stop that. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, started working at the Dayton Daily News and was very lucky because I didn't realize the uh, organization I was joining and, and where it would lead me. But, you know, the Dayton Daily News was the founding property of what is now Cox Enterprises, the largest privately held company in Georgia, one of the largest privately held uh, family-owned and still run by the family uh, company. So it's a remarkable and amazing company in which I've gotten a ton of opportunity, and I literally just sort of fell into it. So I'm a very lucky guy that way. We, we should say that the reason you were at, at the Dayton paper is you are, you're from Cleveland. You grew up in Cleveland, but you went to the University of Dayton for college. So that, that's the connection there. Yeah, that's how that happened. I actually uh, planned to uh, uh, go to law school, go get my undergraduate degree and go to law school, and I changed my mind in my sophomore year. I, I'll never forget it. I was sitting in a, uh, in a political science class as the professor droned on. And I thought, six more years of school, I will never make it. i got to do something else. Uh, so I didn't really go to like one of the big journalism schools or, or anything like that. But it turned out to be the right place for me. So what was your first job? I was a copy editor at the Dayton Daily News. And at that time, just like Atlanta, Dayton had two papers, an afternoon paper and a morning paper. And the Dayton Daily News was the morning paper. And I used I, uh, I uh, would work Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I had to be to work at 6 a.m. when I first started as a senior in college. So that was no easy trick. Um, and uh, I remember that I went for a tryout after calling the copy desk chief from a payphone in the student union. And later, my children went to school at the University of Dayton. We moved here, and they went back to school there. And I would take them to that spot when I went on Parents Weekend and, and say, this is where it all began. The payphone's not there anymore, and they didn't really know what I was talking about. But but it was it's, it's kind of like, a for me, it's like a little ritual when I visit the campus. I always go to that spot. What did it mean to be a copy editor? You know, that was the kind of work where uh, production of the newspaper met the newsroom, right? So uh, it was writing headlines, doing final edits on stories, making sure that when the stories were typeset, improving pages, you know, the final pages before they were sent to be – plates were made from those decisions. So it was um, it was very important to me for two reasons. First, everyone I worked with was a veteran, just the way it worked out. I, they just needed a part-time person to fill in the gaps, and they all took me under their wing. Many of them are still my friends. They were 10 years older than I was and taught me so much, and they just got a kick out of having a young guy 
you know, running around in their operation. And then the other thing was the, the realities of the business and deadlines and what could go wrong when deadlines weren't met or, or there were production problems. You learn that right there, yeah. you know, where, yeah, you, you, the press, if you don't hit your deadline and the press to start a half hour late and all the pressmen work overtime, you've created a many thousands of dollars worth of problems, you know. And so for me, later in my career, that would pay off, having deep respect for the demanding manufacturing and logistical operation that a newspaper was. Um, so you went through this kind of meteoric rise at the paper. Uh, and, and in some ways, it's kind of like, you know, the great American success story. You come in part-time as a copy editor. You end up as editor-in-chief of that newspaper. But along the way, I think you held a job that was, to this day, probably one of your favorite things to cover, which is sports. Right. Well, I, you know, you call it a meteoric rise. It took 25 years uh, to become editor, so I don't know how meteoric <laughs> that is. Uh, it may have been more of a uh, uh, an, a persistence or uh, bumbling around lucky. I don't know. Uh so, uh, yeah, I had many uh, fortunate experiences and got to be sports editor uh, for a couple years in Dayton. And, in fact, I got to do something when I was a uh, sports editor in that era that every print journalist dreams of. I was working the night during the 96 Olympics of the bo- park bombing. Oh. And we were just finishing up. You know, we'd done all our stuff. It was one of those things. And we had CNN on in the newsroom, and we were just getting ready to leave, and there was that explosion. And if, and those who were here will remember that at first they thought maybe a fuse blew in one speaker. I mean, it was a very confusing situation. I'm calling the Atlanta newsroom because we had some of our folks there, and I knew some people in Atlanta trying to find out what happened. Couldn't get a hold of anyone. So I finally made a decision. I hung up on, you know, I was phone was ringing in Atlanta. No one was picking up. I hung up. I picked it up. I dialed four digits. And I said these words everyone dreams of, stop the presses. (laughs) And the press room manager said, okay, but I'm going to need your name. (laughs) As it turned out, I made a good call. Uh, We got the uh, bombing in uh, two-thirds of our uh, uh, newspapers that printed the the next morning. But uh, at the time, I mean, I I tell the story now, you know, with this sort of, uh, you know, feeling great, greatly confident and proud and, and loving that moment. But at the time, I was like, boy, I hope I have a job come, you know, tomorrow because yeah. that's a big decision to make. Do you remember what the headline was? Did you write the headline? No, we still had a couple people in the room. And, and it wasn't, you know, it was an explosion at Olympic Park because yeah. it was the de- details were fuzzy. But we knew if readers picked up the paper in the morning and saw, wow, something happened, and then they would, they would attend to the news and we would have done our job. Well, so – that story points to something I do want to talk about a little later in the show, but stop the presses was a reality back then. Um, today, <clears throat> you would simply write that story on your computer on whatever it is program it is that AJC uses to uh, to uh, do copy, and you'd hit send, and it would appear on the website almost immediately. Right. I mean, now you, you would think about it very differently, although we would still, for the print edition, say, can we get, you know, yeah. is there a way okay. to get this done? Um, but it, it wasn't the same, same. We have so many other, I mean, we wouldn't probably actually, we'd send a text alert and then we'd send an email alert and then we'd get it on the website and then we'd send it an email. You know, there'd be all kinds of things going on because we have so many more ways to reach people now. So um, talk about a few of the stories when you were in Dayton. Uh, yeah, the Olympic Park bombing. Um, 
When, what other stories stand out in your mind as, as important to your, in, in your career? Here's a, here's a favorite one of mine uh, that I, I often tell this to uh, when I'm asked to speak to journalism students because I think um, students are always you know, anxious to find out about how they could get a job and what their opportunities would be. And I try to warn them that you know, in most of businesses in the world and certainly in journalism, you often start out at you know, a pretty low level and uh, without maybe the, uh, you know, the kind of opportunity that you would like. You know, it's tough to go from, you know, journalism school to covering the White House, you know. So, and, uh, but I had this story, so I'm going to date myself here. One of the things I did as a young copy editor was I, uh, I installed the first Macintosh computer in our <laughs> newsroom in Dayton, if you can believe that. It was a thing. And what was, the reason it was important was that, to that point in the business, if you wanted to do a simple graphic or a map, you know, you had to get an artist to do it in the art department. And if there was the slightest mistake, you had to do it over again, you know. But when we installed the Macintosh, we could do simple things like locator maps and, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that you would want to do for readers. And uh, I, I was I had no artistic ability whatsoever, but I could trace something. <laughs> so I started doing that that sort of stuff. We had this, but I was still felt a little bit like I was toiling in obscurity. You know, I really wanted to be a reporter, an editor, you know, and I, was, I wasn't uh, getting maybe the chances that I felt like I, I deserved at, at, in, in my young, you know, mindset as a young journalist. So, so here's what happened. A, a, paint, a, uh, a fire breaks out at a big paint factory in Dayton. And if you've ever, you know, we've covered those kind of things, and, and you know that when a place like that starts on fire, it's a real mess because of all the chemicals and all that stuff. So this thing is burning for days. It happens to be located near the city's well fields. Mm-hmm. And so there are all these questions about it, you know, all this runoff, they're putting water on it, they're trying to control it. Is this going to be bad for the city's water supply? And the mayor and everyone's standing up at press conferences and saying, no, 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 it's fine. It's far from the, the wells, all this stuff. So I decided we really ought to do like a map showing all this. So I walked over to City Hall, which was a couple blocks away, down the basement, found the water department. And I met a water engineer who probably no one had ever spoken with, you know, for 25 years. And he takes me into this room and he pulls out aerial photographs of the well fields, big like, I would say they were about two feet by three feet aerial photographs. And he's showing me where the warehouse is and where the parking lot is that the water's running off of and where the wells are, and he's making copies for me. And I finally asked him, I said, well, you know, these wells look really close. I mean, on, 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 uh, at the press conference on, and on TV, they're saying there's no worry. And he looks at me and goes, oh, yeah, they've been lying about that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I rushed back to the paper on my little Macintosh computer screen, <laughs> you know, found a way to do these maps that show the wells where they're – a few yards, really, of what was happening, and walked into the news meeting, and that story ended up on the front page. It changed the narrative, and it was just from some kid on the copy desk. Did you get to write it? Did I didn't you get, get to write the line? story. I didn't get to write the story, but my name was on the on the graphic that we did. <laughs> and, and here's why I tell that story, because it changed the narrative, but here's the more important thing about it, and this is what newspapering is all about. After that, the city already had many very forward-thinking people about thinking about protecting its water supply and the environment and its rivers, you know, all that stuff. And when I was editor of the paper, I was invited by the head of the Miami Valley Conservancy District, which manages the water around that area of Ohio, to kayak down one of the rivers with a group of officials from the Baltic countries 
uh, countries that bordered the Baltic Sea because they were so concerned about pollution and they'd heard about what Dayton had done. Wow. And Dayton has one of the most progressive and thoughtful ways of managing and its water and keeping it safe. Now, I wouldn't say that's because that graphic only, but it played a role. Yeah. And it's a better place because of that story. Wow. All right. So you have a great personal story about something that happened to you uh, on a Saturday morning when you came in to work and found yourself alone in the newsroom. Yeah. As a young cop editor, after I'd been uh, persistently showing up for a couple months, as I recall, the, the copy desk chief asked me to work on Saturday. I worked Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They needed extra hand on Saturday. So I show up on that morning and no one's there. And I'm panicking. I'm thinking, I'm a, how, I can't be in the wrong place. This is where I come all the time, you know. And there were a bunch of floors in the newsroom or on the building. I thought maybe they work on a different floor. And I'm standing there and I'm just like full of anxiety, you know, because I'm like, this job is important to me. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm already late if I'm not in the right place, right? And it's just, you know, uh, 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 this sort of polite, well-dressed gentleman kind of walked up to me. In those days, you know, there wasn't a lot of security in a building like that. And he starts talking to me, and I just recall him talking to me about, you know, asking me my name and, you know, how I liked working there and, you know, being very positive. But I was extremely distracted and hardly paying attention to him because I'm like, what? You know, why do I need to be talking to this guy? i got to find out, you know, where are the other copulators? So after a while, you know, he said goodbye, wished me well, and I waited a little more. And then one of the copulators finally showed up. And I'm like, what's going on? And, and he just said, oh. Hey, we we sleep in an hour late <laughs> later on Saturday. Don't tell the boss. You can come an hour later on Saturdays. So I didn't think too much of it. We worked through the first deadline. And when we had a break, I started talking about this guy that I saw. And they the entire all the everyone there, all the copy editors stopped, turned around and just started peppering me with questions like, what did he look like? What did he say? What and I'm like, what, what, what is going on here? I found out in that moment that for many years, it was rumored that the ghost of James Cox, the governor, as we called him in Dayton, who was the founder of our company, haunted the Dayton Daily News building that he built. And they were convinced that I had met the governor's ghost. And it's such a, and I was very sort of dismissive of it for a long time. You know, as a young man, I just didn't kind of hearken to that sort of thinking. But as you, you know, as you live life and you have many experiences, you start to maybe think that not everything can be explained very well. And maybe there was something going on there, you know. Uh, and so when I, I told the staff that story, I said, that is the one thing that ex- can explain how I ended up being the editor of the Electoral <laughs> Constitution, the governor's intervention. Uh, he was governor. Uh, t- tell tell our listeners a little bit about who James Cox was, because he had a prolific political career in addition to the business that he, he started. Yeah. So um, one of the things that uh, – I mean, I didn't know much of this when I started the paper, but very early on, um, I, one of the reporters that I knew took me out to lunch. And when the check came, he said, oh, this is on the governor. And people in Dayton at that time still talked about the governor as if he were alive. He had died in like 1957, I think I have that right, uh, after um, being a, uh, a two-term governor of Ohio, uh, after running for president in 1920 and losing to a fellow Ohioan Warren Harding, and then turning his mind to his business, which included ultimately buying the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution. 
And so his presence, I worked with people he personally hired. I mean, wow. uh, and people would talk about him and tell stories about him. And uh, it remains a very inspiring character, obviously. And our company now is run by his great-grandson, Alex Taylor. It's interesting that um, that the Cox uh, folks, pretty much divested of their um, publishing interests and their uh, television stations, so that um, it, in terms of your career, um, there's just, I think I'm right, it's just the two newspapers, Dayton, because that's where the company was founded. It was the it was the beginning, and then Atlanta, because in many ways this is a flagship. Uh, and you worked for you were the I think the only uh, uh, editor in chief who ran both of those operations. Yeah, that is a very special thing to me to to be the only really the only person who could say that, um, and to have had a chance to work for this family and this company, and to feel the sense of commitment they have to this city that they had to Dayton, that they have to local journalism and their hopes to, you know, and the, and the support, the enormous support we get as we really work, you know, the AJC really is working and transforming into a modern media company mm-hmm. because um, the, you know, the newspaper operating model, the economics of it, it's just not going to last and we still want to do this important work. Uh, someone's got to hold that legislature accountable. Someone's got to make sure that local school boards are doing what they should do. And there's just a ton of support uh, for that. I want to talk about all that. And, and I especially want to talk about your career after you came to Atlanta and some of the most important stories that you oversaw while you were uh, uh, working as editor-in-chief. Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way and come back and talk about that and a lot more. Kevin Riley's our guest. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. It was just yesterday that Kevin Riley, our uh, partner from the AJC on the Thursday editions of the show, uh, announced his retirement as editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, Kevin, before we tell your stories, you mentioned Leroy Chapman. Let's just say a couple words f- about that uh, 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 position that he is now uh, assuming from you. Um, it's historic. Um, Leroy Chapman becomes the first African-American editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And, and I couldn't help but think about the, the days when that paper, uh, and you'll tell me whether it was the Journal or the Constitution, the tagline underneath the logo was, covers Dixie like the do. That was the Journal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very different from the times that Leroy Chapman moves into now. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, uh, you know, again, we talked a little bit about uh, where the, the – and we'll get back to it, I'm sure, about where the business is going. But in the end, you know, it, it it becomes – it's about the journalism and it is about telling the right stories and having the right judgment and leadership to get that done. And uh, I think when you look at our city and our state, you know that it's a, it's a place that's changing 
And I think Leroy is the right guy at the right time for uh, what the AJC is going to be and needs to be. Your new publisher, Andrew Morris, uh, said something very similar when he announced that Leroy was taking that job. This is a city now that deserves to have an African-American at the head of its daily newspaper. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, a lot of people ask me about why now, you know, why I decided to retire now. Uh, and one of the biggest reasons is that I, I, I couldn't feel better about the future of the paper. And, and, and really, if you, I might as well tell you the story of exactly why I decided to retire now. I was talking to my wife, Tracy, um, and I was telling her, you know, I feel so good about where things are, where it's headed. Because the, the newspaper's been, you know, industry's been under a lot of duress, had some tough times financially, and people know that. And uh, I, 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 and I'm telling her this, and she says, "Wait a minute. When times were really hard, you would always tell me you weren't going to leave until you felt good, that you never wanted to feel like you were abandoning the place. And now you're telling me you won't leave because things are good. So what you're telling me is that you're never going to leave." And I thought, and, I, and we've been together, we've been married for uh, almost, uh, I better get this right, thirty, getting close to 37 years, but together really for 40 years. And uh, I thought, you know, like, like all of us who have long-term you know, yeah. spouses and partners, like, darn it. I mean, she's right. Tr- Tracy always knows <laughs> how she to was... keep you on the straight and narrow, <laughs> <Yeah>. Riley. <laughs> and so uh, it really opened my eyes and made me feel good about, yeah, this is, a, this is the right time and I feel good about it. So you arrived in Atlanta to run the paper here in 2011. And there was already a big story. The first big story that you had to confront as the new boss yeah, it was the uh, Atlanta um, uh, the school cheating scandal. And just to be super clear, all of the reporting on that was done by the time I arrived. And when I arrived was sort of at the aftermath and the height of the public pressure. About, the blowback. Yeah. And, I mean, the state report hadn't been issued yet and, and all of that. And so it was hard. Um, but – and I have this moment, and I, I, I this is a story I, I really want to tell of uh, – listeners, if you've ever seen the movie Spotlight, that's the movie about the Boston Globe's coverage of the uh, Catholic Church uh, and the priest's abuse scandal. And there is a scene in the movie where Marty Baron, then the editor of the Globe, later the editor of the Washington Post, has a meeting with the cardinal of of the Catholic Church in Boston. And it is very clear that the cardinal's attempting to intimidate him out of continuing to cover the story. I had a very, very similar incident with Beverly Hall. All right. So let's make sure, let's set this up properly. What had happened was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution investigation had revealed that teachers were changing test scores, were literally erasing bubbles and putting the right answers in to try to improve the performance of their students. And uh, it was a huge scandal um, the business community here through the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce had invested enormously in Beverly Hall's success as superintendent because they knew that you couldn't attract business to this city if you had a bad public school system. Beverly Hall was held up as the woman who was going to turn everything around, and then she finds herself embroiled in this scandal. So I got a call, actually my uh, administrative assistant got a call. One, uh, I remember because it was a Friday afternoon that um, Beverly Hall wanted to meet with me and could I do it today? 
Well, my sister got a hold of me. I was actually on MARTA going to the airport because my family hadn't yet moved to Atlanta and I was headed back for the weekend. So I made arrangements to meet her first thing Monday morning down at a conference room in Peachtree Center. And I walked in and there she was there with one of the business leaders and I, I don't know how else to describe it. It was an hour uh, long browbeating, trying to convince me that our reporting was wrong, that the paper would be embarrassed, that it was up to me to make this right. But what she didn't know was before I actually took the job, the newsroom had prepared for me in a binder every story that had been written about the cheating scandal. And you'll recall it involved complicated computer mm. test score analysis and all that. And when I, first of all, I read it all and it was amazing. It, and, and she seemed to assume when she met with me that I wouldn't be familiar with all of that. And, you know, was arguing with me about how many test scores were suspicious. There were, she believed there were many fewer schools than we had reported. And I knew from talking to our folks who'd done the analysis that their standard for what was suspicious scoring was so high that they were, they, they thought it was likely there were many, many more schools, you know. And I'll never forget it because uh, I walked out of that and I thought, wow, this is, this is a lot. This, it, this, it was really hard. And then when I saw Spotlight years later, I just realized, yeah, that's how it always happens. There's this attempt to take away your confidence, to make you feel like maybe you, don't, you can't trust these frontline journalists. Maybe they've got an agenda. And I, I just tell you, one of the great satisfactions of having this job around that story, I would say two. First, our reporters were meticulously careful and in any moment could explain in great detail everything they had done. And it was just so like reaffirming and inspiring to talk to them. And second, Cox was unbelievably supportive. Never, ever said anything, but you guys stick with that story. We, you, we've got your back. And that there... I, I, you know, I said this in the story this morning. I believe I had the best job in Atlanta, working for the best company in Atlanta with the best staff in yeah. Atlanta. Um, Beverly Hall was eventually indicted. She did not go to trial because she died. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it shows something about the fearlessness that good journalism requires at times. You've actually um, are experiencing that currently at at the paper. Um, you're reporting on on some of the players on, on the University of Georgia football team, that horrific uh, crash that um, killed two people. Um, your reporting on that is, there's nothing more sacred, I've said this on the air, in Georgia, aside from your church, synagogue, or mosque, than University of Georgia football. And you've been relentless and I think brave in pursuing that story which does not make the university and the way it deals with this football program look very good at all. Yeah, and let's preface this whole discussion. I mean, you mentioned it, but let me be clear. This is a tragedy. Yeah. Two young people died and others were seriously injured. And, and that's, you know, the backdrop. Uh, and we should never forget that. These are lives and, and lives that were in the hands of uh, that football program in terms of the supervision of their, of their lives. Now, um, it's been hard, and, and some of what our folks have put up with from fans, whether it's some of the reporters or our beat writer or even our social media folks who, you know, who, who use social media to make sure people are, has been tough. But it reminds me of something I, I would tell people all the time. You know, a good newspaper is like a close friend. 
<laughs> we were there when all the great things happened. We had many people at those big victories, uh, one of which came against Ohio State. was tough for me to take. Uh, but and, and you share those. Our job is to share those great moments and, and, and document them and make sure they are completely understood and experienced by, by the people who care about them. But a close friend also sometimes has to tell you things that you need to know that you might not want to hear. And I think that's what we're doing now. Our, the citizens of the state, supporters of the university, the taxpayers, however you want to look at it, deserve to know, like, what exactly happened? And what are we going to do about making sure something so terrible doesn't happen again? Yeah. Um, of course, that plays right into the question of whether people right now, given the huge partisan divide in this country, um, given the um, war on the integrity of the media launched certainly first by or not first, but but a- amplified by Donald Trump, whether people do want to hear uh, the bad news from a good their good friend, the newspaper, the radio station, whatever. Um, increasingly, we seem to want to pay attention only to those news organizations that tell us what we want to hear. Yeah, I mean, that is concerning, um, but uh, that the truth is just such a pesky thing, you know. <laughs> and I think that in the end, um, it has to be valued and will be valued by, uh, by us, by our society. And um, I think that pursuit of it um, is one of the hardest, most important things that, that, that we do as journalists. And I understand, you know, how upsetting it can be. And we understand how important it is. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, this whole uh, lawsuit against Fox News that, you know, has been grabbing the headlines and depending on, you know, people's politics, they have different points of view. And, you know, we don't know how it will come out and whether there will be some big, you know, uh, settlement or anything. But here's the sin in what happened there. Disrespecting your audience is a mistake. Mm. I mean, I know a lot of people who are listening to the show and listen to the show because I hear from them myself. You know, we have to respect those folks. They are spending an hour with us this morning, and it needs to be worth their time. And we need to be thinking about are they getting from us what we need and what they deserve. And I think what what was revelatory about uh, Fox and very troubling is that the, those hosts don't seem to care. They were playing their audience. And, and I know on this show, I know how hard you work. I know how hard your staff works, how proud I am to be part of it. I mean, we care about this audience. Those people, those of you listening right now, I'm telling you right now, Bill Nygut respects you and cares a lot about making sure that the hour you spend with him is worthwhile. Well, thank you for saying that. But this is about you today, not about <laughs> what I do. Um I want to talk about what you have said. It may be the biggest story that you've covered in your time, that you've overseen coverage of in your time as editor-in-chief, and that's the pandemic. Why? Why? I mean, obviously, it, it, it's a no-brainer to say it was an enormous story, but why do you single it out as the most important story? Uh, covering the pandemic uh, from the perspective of a leader of a newsroom scared the hell out of me, simply stated, and here's why. Um, you know, we ask our journalists to put themselves into a lot of demanding situations. I mean, you send a young reporter out to a murder scene, you to cover a fire, you, you, you know, Greg Bluestein has to endure a press conference that the governor calls to disparage his reporting. But one of the things I know about them and have learned about them is that if, 
when they if they can go home, when they can leave that moment, can they they can enjoy their personal lives, they'll generally be okay if if you you give them that opportunity and you tend to them. Um, but I knew in the pandemic from some smaller uh, previous experiences, living a story you cover is extremely hard to do because you can't leave it alone. You're covering something and then you're living it. And th- that along with, uh, you know, when our managing editor, uh, Sean McIntosh, came into my office and that March afternoon and said, we have to send everybody home right now because if anyone walks in our newsroom and they are positive, we are going to have to quarantine the whole staff. We won't even get the newspaper out. And we did it. And in one day, we, we, we started working virtually. But not to have the newsroom, not to have that everyday contact, that interpersonal um, interaction that's so important to covering the news scared me. So um, we, we did a great job. It was a, it was a tremendous uh, and huge story where we were you know, giving people information to keep them safe. But my favorite, you know, little anecdote, and I think we have time for me to quickly tell this. Well, I, if you're going to talk about what you started doing on a daily basis, I'd like to save that for after uh, the break. Let's just tease it. You decided that you there was something very important you could do to keep everyone in your team connected. And we'll talk about that because it's also about leadership. And that's what I want to talk about in the remaining time we have on today's show. We'll be back in just a minute. Kevin Riley, when the pandemic hit, when we were all sent home as we were here at GPB, as you just talked about in terms of your entire staff at AJC, um, we all felt disconnected immediately from uh, our daily jobs. Suddenly we weren't with our colleagues. We weren't our bosses were not part of our lives. And, and that, as you said before the break, was something that concerned you greatly. So I think one of the most remarkable things you did to respond to that was a decision to have a daily major communication with your staff. Talk about that. Yeah. So I realized that, um, you know, during the pandemic with all the pressure and confusion and disconnection we were going to have, I, that I need, the staff need to hear from me every day. So I tried, I, I set up this system where they got an email from me every day. And, w- and I, I did it for 15 months, actually, I think it was 15 months. And um, I did it with a lot of help, too. I mean, a lot of help and contribution. So what happened was, at first, I thought, okay, they need to hear from me. So the information was basic. Here's our policy on if you need a mask or you can get a mask or if you're out covering something and, you know, all the things. We needed those essential worker letters in case, you know, because there were, remember, there you couldn't really even sure. travel around. It was really. And over time, what I ended up doing was simply asking people on the staff. I would send you know, like a, a, a Patricia Murphy, a note. well, actually, Patricia wasn't worthless yet. We hired her during the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, but anyone on the staff and say, hey, could you send me a few sentences or paragraphs that about how you're doing, you know, uh, because your colleagues are, you know, we're, I wanted people to, in the same way you might walk around the Newsom room and ask someone, hey, how are you doing? Or if someone looked down, ask them, you know, how they were doing. And so we, at, at the lead off to the Daily Note became, hey, here's, you know, this person and what's going on. Um, 
some of them were hilarious. You know, people took that moment to, you know, almost, I think, feel like they needed to cheer everybody up and, and tell them about funny things that happened to them. Others were sad. I mean, we had a woman who had to cancel her wedding, you know. Um, and others, you know, were actually tragic. I mean, some people had family members die that they wanted their colleagues to know about. Uh, Mike Lakovich, our cartoonist, he, <laughs> he, of course, drew a cartoon of himself uh, that I sent out that day. It was him in his basement where he worked during the pandemic, uh, drinking a bottle of bleach in his underwear or something. Was, I wondered if it was appropriate, but I sent it anyway. Um, and so we did versions of that. We highlighted good work. Um, we also did things where people would explain how they got a particularly difficult story. And um, about, uh, a, you know, after near the end of it, one of the reporters, uh, I think it was Carrie Teagarden, I give her credit for it, um, said, you know, you ought to like, you ought to compile that and save it, you know. So what we ended up doing is we took all 15 months worth of emails, the pictures that were in there, you know, because again, the unrest, the social unrest, all these things happened. And... Uh, Angie Smith, my fantastic, incredible uh, uh, newsroom admin assistant, she she compiled it and we published a book. And it's about the size of a high school yearbook with all of that stuff in it. And we sent one to everyone on the staff. Yeah. As, and it's like a great memory book. But my, I was really touched by uh, both Sheffield Hale, head of the Atlanta History Center, and Todd Gross, the head of the Georgia Historical Society, asked for copies for their collection. And one of the things Todd told me, he said, there's nothing more valuable to a historian than contemporaneous accounts of what happened. Yeah. And so in our way, our newsroom contributed to an important part of Georgia's history that will live forever, all in an effort to just make sure we didn't lose track of each other. I, I was really, really grateful, and I cherish the fact that I have a copy of that book. It's phenomenal. And, and, and one of the things it points to, Kevin, you know, I, I obviously because we have partners uh, 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 from your paper on our show um, every day. And, and by the way, you're the reason for that. We should thank you for that. I mean, when this show started nine years ago now, um, Jim Galloway was, of course, writing the column, the political column, the insider column. And we were on one day a week and I called Galloway, who I'd, you know, worked with for years on stories and said, why don't you come on this show because we could use somebody other than me as the journalist on the show. And as the show expanded, we kept turning back to your folks and saying, would you come on this show? Would you come on that show? So, so now, thanks to your support, the fact that we have Patricia Murphy, Tamar Hallerman, Greg Bluestein, uh, you and Galloway still, that Leroy Chapman is occasionally on the show, other reporters. It's been a partnership that has made Political Rewind better and that I think has served the, the, the newspaper well. All right, that said, every single person I talk to about your decision to retire, um, all those reporters said one thing. He's the best leader we've ever had. What are the lessons of leadership that matter most when you have to run an organization like that? Well, first, order your staff to talk about you that way. I mean, I think that's lesson number one and, you know, threaten them if they don't. Um, well, listen, I think that the most important way to run a newsroom is that you, you, a newsroom has to be confident, move quickly, and be trusted. 
And so that is what I've tried to inspire in our newsroom with our editors and reporters. And this is what I mean. If, if you have a great big organization with many demands on it and no one moves until they're ordered to or they're afraid to move unless they get approval, you'll never be fast enough or good enough, right? And so here's my favorite story as an example. And I have said this to people on the staff as an example. Um, uh, when the Braves won the World Series – Okay, and the plans were being made for the big parade. And you'll remember, it was kind of a logistical nightmare. We're going to go from downtown out to Cobb County. It was, you know, just, just something. Our, one of our veteran photographers uh, who since retired, Curtis Compton. Curtis might be listening because I think he's a fan of this show as well. Um, he knew that we had to, to cover this appropriate. We had to have aerial photography. We just had to be able to do it. And... When the world, the Braves got in that World Series, I had a, uh, something I said to our uh, managing editor, Mark Wallagor, and our sports editor, Chris Fivlemore, who led the coverage. I said, guys, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but don't leave anything on the field. When Game 7 is over, or this is over, I don't want anyone feeling like, God, I wish we would have done this, or we wish we would have. Just go for it. This is once in a lifetime. Let's just do this. And you don't have to check with me. Go. Well, um, they, they, they did that, especially Curtis, because Curtis was in the air in a helicopter taking photographs before I even knew we had talking about renting a helicopter to do it. And, and I am the boss, and it's kind of a big expense, but I was so proud of them for doing that and him and uh, others. And I've had many cases where the, the, news, the staff has moved and, and gotten on a story before I even knew about it. But, but that... I think for a newsroom to be effective, and that's what I'm most proud of among many things, you know, about our staff, is that my job is to give them the context within which to do that and to make the demands of them, but mostly trust them. It's sort of to them. let them go. You know, it, as you, I've heard you, of course, talk about this a lot in, in, as we've been friends. Um, but it suddenly, for the first time, reminded me of what happens when your children are adults and go off into the world. You may still give them guidance. You may still offer them advice here and there. But you've let them go and said, make your life as best you can. And in many ways, that's part of what you're saying about leadership is you have to have people you trust and let them do their jobs and try not to interfere unless it's absolutely necessary. Right. I mean, you, you want to make sure they have good guidance and you don't want things to obviously get out of control. But um, people, I think, uh, it, it just reminds me of a, a baseball coach I had as a young man. It just, uh, you know, you can be that kind of leader that yells and screams and people fear you. And that is, is you get a lot of good results in a short time doing that. But uh, it, it has its limitations. But what you really want is people to feel like the great sin is not coming through yeah. or disappointing their colleagues. Um, now, just don't get emotional on me here. <laughs> I'll try. But as we close, because we've only got a few minutes left, um, a lot of what you know about the kind of person you've become and your notions about leadership come from um, your dad, who was a Cleveland cop. Um, you talk about him with such great affection and uh, such respect. Uh, you learned a lot from, from your dad. Yeah. All right. So let's try not to get emotional. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am. I, I've joked about this, like, you know, when we did the show about Irish culture, about being it almost being a cliche, the one of six children of, uh, in a, of an Irish Catholic cop in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I think, you know, uh, I learned a lot from him. 
And just uh, he was the kind of guy who had a real sense of what the right thing to do was. You know, I'm, I didn't have the strongest sense when I was a, a young kid, but and um, you know, he his message was always the same. Like you know what the right thing to do is, so do it. And that has really stuck with me, and especially in this job where you have to make a lot of calls, you can feel a lot of pressure, you can be attacked from many sides about your judgment, and you just have to believe, like, okay, I, I know what the right thing to do is, I'm going to stick with it. And that's really what I've tried to do. Yeah. Uh, just a couple minutes left. So, one, we know that one of the things that, and, and Andrew Morris said it, I think, in a quote in, in the article about, about Leroy and you, um, you're moving towards... It, it, you really began this move towards digitizing the newspaper, hoping that you, your readers will now get the paper on their computers, on their iPads, on their phones, because that's the only direction you believe the newspaper business can take to survive. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And, and we, are, we are moving in that direction and we're, we are going to invest a lot in that and work hard at it to become a modern, you know, take this storied newspaper and make this transition to a modern media company. Let me put it to you this way. And I know that, I know from talking to many of your listeners, they love their printed newspaper, they love that. And we're going to, that's going to be around for a while. But this state, this city needs a really serious, a fact-based journalistic entity to do its job so that we can be the kind of place we need to be as a community and a state. If you were going to start that today, you wouldn't invest millions of dollars in presses and spend all kinds of money manufacturing things on paper. You would be purely digital. Yeah. And we have to make that transition, and we certainly want people to come along with us and know that our goal is to be here for a long time doing the important job that we do. It's going to be fascinating to watch it. I read the paper every morning on my iPad. I no longer get the newspaper. And there are times I miss it. There are times I miss having the broadsheet that I can sit with a cup of coffee and open up. But I also love the convenience of having it right there uh, when I get up in the morning on my iPad. All right. We got about a minute and a half. What's next for Kevin Riley? Well, you know, Bill, I've been running a newsroom for I think it's 17 years so I think step one is let's catch my breath. <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, I, I still have some loose ends and some things I'm going to work on in this editor-at-large status and, and, and really want to make sure the transition goes well. Uh, and then we'll see. But um, I love Atlanta. You know, uh, I have it's been one of the great gifts of my life to come here and fall in love with the place. I have so many friends here. Who I'm, you know, my phone is still buzzing even during this show, uh, and I I'm hoping to, you know, uh, just decompress and then be open to what what can come next. Yeah. But uh, I love this place. Um, I'll probably split my time between here and our our beach house in South Carolina. But uh, you're not getting rid of me. I'll, I'm going to show up at the studio whether you invite me on Thursdays or not. <laughs> no, we 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 definitely want you uh, to be here with us, Kevin. Um, this has been, for me, a really gratifying um, hour. And, and I'm glad our listeners got to know you a little better, as I have over the last few years. You, our friend Mark Rosenberg, the public health expert, and I have become very, very close friends throughout the pandemic. We've met every Friday on WebEx and had a bourbon together and talked about our week. And in that time, I've come to know what a wonderful person you are. And I'm glad everybody who's listening today gets to hear the same thing. Congratulations on your decision. 
Um, and we'll see you next Thursday on Political Rewind, Kevin. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> That's it for us. We're out of time for uh, today and for this week. I hope you all have a great weekend. Next week, the legislature finishes up on Wednesday, so we'll be focused in a laser-like way on what's happening down at the state capitol. Until then, have a great weekend. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to each other. Thank you, Natalie Mendenhall, Jake Cook, um, and uh, Chase McGee, as well as Victoria Evan Cash. That's it for us. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.